there's a couple of things that always seem to be simmering just below the surface that get me very emotional very quickly. And one is fathers, basically, and that, like, why did my dad leave when I was three and never contact us again? Original abandonment in your life, right? And when you talk about charge, that is most certainly charged. Because sometimes with trauma, a lot of things are cross-contextualized. They might not look exactly the same, but the abandonment that you felt from your father was a repeating of the same emotions and feelings as when your wife left you. And that if you went into those emotions, found the root cause of them and got the learnings from that and then let those go, then that wouldn't repeat again inside of your life. I take responsibility for that, I have to say. I said for the longest time that there were two things that I was leaving till last and one was dad's and one was God because I just couldn't stand God <laughs> and I just didn't even want to think of it. It's just like, you know, I've got no time here. But then the other one was dad's. Kind of like a father figure. Right. Yeah, yeah. I have not delved into that. Like, I certainly haven't, you know, examined my feelings around dad not being there and then the next dad being an asshole and just that constant lack of, you know, wow. being seen or whatever. Or, yeah, bonding. There's just no, but and also mum was a bit out of time as well. You liked modeling as far as like your father goes, you know? Yeah. So mum always sided with him too. So, there was never a choice between him and us, and she always chose him. And the pattern in my two longest-term relationships has been emotional unavailability in my partners, but yearning to be loved and like that people-pleasing. There was definitely, you know, people-pleasing in that, and that was probably part of my shortcomings in the recent marriage failure was just taking care of everything. You know, she demanded it to a point, but I offered it up too. And I think by doing that, it sort of created this situation where it seemed like I just would have accepted anything, even though I had very firm boundaries for respect and the way that I believed I should be treated. So it's not like I just was this rag that could be used at any point. I'm, you know, a very sort of strong person who does demand that respect, but there was also certainly the thing of like, you know, she'd come up with an idea and I'd just make it happen. So it's like, I think we need to get a caravan, an old one, and we'll do it up. And, whatever. and so literally within a couple of months, we'd have an old caravan and I'd be doing it up. <laughs> so, you know, I've renovated bathrooms, done kitchens, done yards, roofs. I was going to ask, did you ever go to college or what's your education? I finished high school. So I came back from India when I was 11 and a half and went into the last term of primary school. So I did one year of primary school, which is year like one to six. And then I did high school, which is seven to 12. And then I did a carpentry apprenticeship. I think the construction industry to begin with was cathartic in that it was completely devoid of emotion. <laughs> I didn't have to talk about my emotions to anyone. No one really cared. You could be having a good day or a bad day. And as long as you kept nailing those walls together, no one cared. But yeah, I finished that carpentry apprenticeship, but I, I didn't get to the end before I was in management. I was a fourth year apprentice and started managing large scale commercial projects in that pulling people together. And it just sort of went from there. You know, eight years later, I was building a football stadium, it was like 53 million bucks in 42 weeks. I'm spending over a million a week 
it was crazy. That was another one of those situations that sort of just grew legs of its own as well. And then I did an advanced diploma of construction management, but all through recognition of prior learning because I've been doing it for so long that I just went in there and answered all the questions and they give you the thing. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, well, here's your certificate. You've been doing it long enough. So if there was a way for you to release all those emotions around your father and the repeating of it with your ex-wife, would that be something that would be useful for you? Yeah. So a bit about me is if something comes to me and I feel like it's, I like to go at my pace, right? And so if I feel like I'm being rushed through something, I don't react very well to that. Sort of puts up a wall and it's just like, hang on a minute. I'm still on the last issue. So five, okay? (laughs) So in those guided things, there was this one meditation thing that I had to sit through. Stabbing eyes. I'm sitting there. I'm not allowed to talk. I had to keep my eyes closed and think, go through this guided meditation. In the end, I just had to open my eyes. I was just like, I can't sit here anymore. Look, you're lovely and all, but I've got to go. Got up and just took off. That was it. And it wasn't because I felt like I was going too deep or anything. It was just the sitting still. And it just wasn't the way that I processed. I feel so much peace in, you know, going for a huge bushwalk and being physically exhausted and standing in the middle of nature and there not being anything or anyone around and just going, wow, this is awesome. And I feel tiny in it. All my problems are so minuscule when I realise that I'm just such a small part of a huge period of time. Like we're literally a blip in the lifespan of the world and people could come and people could go and the rock, that same rock will still be there. That rock has seen probably the first person that was ever born or the first thing that ever crawled out of the water and grew legs. Those, you know, and here we are and we get so wrapped up in, you know, my own problems. And so that sort of really does help me out. So I'm not going to say that I wouldn't. What is keeping you wanting to hold on to those emotions? How is it still serving you? How is it still, you know, serving a purpose in your life to hang on to some of that? Nothing that I am hanging on to is serving me. Everything I let go serves me. Everything. What would you like feeling instead of, you know, these lingering feelings of sadness and anger, resentment? A sense of belonging. I want to belong. That feeling of just being loved for me, right? So not, you know, we see this, you know, like beautiful woman who you're attracted to and is successful in a certain way and you're like, shit, I better go start doing some push-ups. You know what I mean? It's like, but just being loved for me for exactly who I am exactly at point and being enough. Because I'm sort of so responsible and stuff, I often feel boring. You know, like I'm not the one that's just out there. I don't know. So I do. But just to be respected, admired and loved for those things, just exactly who I am. And that sense of belonging, I think that's something that I would have to say would be one of the rarest (laughs) things that I've felt, but something that is extremely important to me. So what I see there when you say that is that from what I know about your childhood, that you belong to something, but you had to do something to be seen as good. Like you had to go out and ask for money on the streets. You had to take care of your brothers and sisters. You had to be the one in charge and that they actually never really loved you for you. They loved 
what you could do for them. Yeah, most definitely. There's been a lot that I've picked up from these podcasts. I think I've listened to like six of them or something up to Serena. So I listened to both of hers and that's sort of where I'm up to. But definitely being valuable for what you can do. Yes, most definitely. And that, you know, all the people pleasing that comes with that and the value associated with service. And there's obviously some good bits to that where, you know, being really adaptable. And I actually have worked with some of the most difficult people in construction and they left me with them because I was the only one who could operate with them. (laughs) Because I think that deep vibrational sensitivity that you end up picking up when you're young in trauma and you need that to survive, it can become a skill that you can drop off the negative sides to that and utilise that in being able to pick moods and different ways around and sort of navigate difficult situations. But certainly as far as, as having to perform in order, yes, absolutely. Like we had to sing, we had to beg, we had to wash dishes. I ran the kid, you know, when I think of, what I was doing when I was eight years old and I look at my own kids and they're eight and they're just so small. They're so small and running, you know, dishwashing gangs of 15 kids and stuff, you know, and it's like they'd come and say, oh, can you check the table, you know, and here I am, a nine-year-old kid walking out to the dining room and going, just wipe that little bit over there and you're good to go. You're free, you know, and then someone will say, can I be free too? Can I be free? I said, well, you're nearly finished sweeping us, so you've done a really good job. Do you see how those, like, qualities that were instilled in you as a child have been what you have utilized for your success in, like, an adversity? I think that that type of adversity for children is great. I'm sorry, but kids these days, they don't know how to freaking wipe a table or wash a dish. And they're, like, 13, 14 years old. One of my best friends, it's like pulling teeth to get her 14-year-old to just wash the dishes after the small three-family unit. There is a certain type of adversity that, that children need, and it's what causes resiliency. I think that the outcome or the side effect from going through that as a child is like, oh, I want to protect my kids from that. You know, I want to sell to them and make everything easy for them. But it's cutting the tone to them because how are they going? You know, so it's like those, those are actually the things that I went through in the group that I was very thankful that I went through. I mean, it sucked at the time. Yeah, you're a kid. You just want to play. But it's that discipline, you know, and it's that you were managing construction teams. Pulling all these people together to clean up. When you mentioned that one of your things was building resiliency in children, without them having to go through traumatic events. That's certainly something, because if my young fellow wants a bike, and it's a certain type and he says he's saving up for it, you know, what can I do? And, you know, he might mow the lawn twice or something, and and it's it's like, all right, let's go get the bike. (laughs) It's like, oh, we're done already. You know, I don't even want to wait myself. And, you know, he'll have breakfast and just leave the bowl there. And I look at it and I kind of go, it's probably just easier. I'll just wash it. (laughs) But it doesn't teach me, and I can see a lack of resilience in the world at large like definitely in first world society where you look at a situation like this COVID and it is difficult it's shit right but when you see the degree to which people are falling apart because you know everyone was so scared to not have toilet paper there were months when we didn't have toilet paper and we were just using old 
oily cotton out of a mattress that was piled in the corner of the bathroom in India and it didn't wipe anything off, all right? And so this is months. We, we didn't have any money. We didn't have money for that. We didn't have money for peanut butter. We didn't have money for real bread. And so you just ate cracked wheat that was boiled with water and then slurped with juggery, overcooked, flies sat on it. That's how when we were in quarantine for having malaria, the downstairs people were eating first, not covering the food, taking it upstairs to us in quarantine. Then we end up with typhoid. It's kind of like this. What the hell? Talk about medieval times. <laughs> I know. Bit nuts. But anyway, that's what India was like. Oh, wait till you hear Gijo's story because he's... No, I didn't hear Gijo's. I've listened to Gijo. Yes, I've done all his. That was incredible. It's so crazy. Christina, we were talking a little bit about that need to, or that want to just, you know, give your kids everything you didn't have, right? And what you're saying to that. So I am planning on having kids soon. I want like nine of them. I love kids. And there was a time where I was like thinking to myself, well, I want to make sure that they don't ever have to do any of these things that I had to do and their life will be a lot easier. And then I realized, so I was like, am I having a kid because I want to see them grow and develop and, or am I doing it? So I get a need of mine met that wasn't met for me. So I had to like rethink about that. So I was like, well, I was trying to give them everything that I didn't have. And I was like, but that's not what they need. They need what they specifically need. And that comes from, in, seeing what that is, allowing them to blossom in the way that they want to blossom, and then picking and choosing what kind of skills and adversity that I want to curate for them instead of, you know, just basically saying, you can have anything you want. Because, you know, as a kid, I was like, I don't want to have anything I want. I don't want to have to chop wood during the summer and, you know, take a bath and be in a cup and throw it out the window. You know, like, I live so far away from town and we only went there once a month. So I was like, oh, and it just really dawned on me. So at that point I was like, okay, I had to sit down and really like question myself about it, which I found really good because then, you know, I sat down with my fiance. I was like, hey, these are the things I've been thinking about. And I was like, we have to tune in. Like I want to tune into them before they get here, see what they want, need, what are they coming into this world wanting to do and meeting those needs. And it felt really good. No, yeah, have that shift because the other side of that coin to go back to your story that you were talking about in the beginning about your stepdad and how he didn't let you negotiate for your needs at all and it was this like tyrannical dictator yeah. the other side of the coin just like in politics you know the democrats they think that they're going so far from the republicans and it's a linear line but the truth is it's a horseshoe and the further that they think that they're getting away from each other, the closer they're getting at the top of the horseshoe. So one, on one side, you have the tyrannical dictator who doesn't let the children you know, negotiate for their needs. But then the other one, you have the overbearing mother or the super concerned father who also doesn't let them negotiate, right? Because they want to protect them from everything. And it's like, you know, they're both not letting the kids negotiate. And it can come out with a very similar result in the child, not being able to think for themselves. I like the idea of when my kids are able to speak, like what is it that, well, I mean, I want to focus on their behavior. When they're communicating through their behavior that is telling me what they need. And then I will let them negotiate with me about their needs. What is your need? What do I need? How do we find a third option to meet everyone's need in this moment? 
Yeah, I can't wait to have kids. I want them so bad. I've always wanted them. The thing is that each kid is so incredibly different, too, that it's like you think you've got it all sorted out with the first one. It's just like, oh, you know, I'm good. And then the next one comes along and they're just so incredibly different. And it's like, wow, well, all those tactics aren't going to work with this one. You know, I need to open up a whole new bag of tricks. You had mentioned something about having experienced or participated in an orgy before you left the group. Well, put it this way, as kids, so I was born in 75 and we left in 87. And we went to India in 82 and we were there for four years and things really heated up. And it was just the kids' romantic nights, right? So it would be the adults would have theirs and I'd look after the kids, you know, obviously on those nights and they'd be in their own room doing whatever the hell they're doing in there but because I was like one of the older one or you go to then you'd have kids romantic nights and there was usually more girls than there was boys and so you know I was eight years old with an eight-year-old and an 11 year old so there was three of us and we're all you know kissing each other and touching bits and whatever and it's like you know that was that was eight. How do you know how to do that? Had you seen it or like? I don't ever remember a time where I didn't know. I remember being in this big room, almost like a screen or like a mini theatre in Australia before we went to India and there was a porno on, like full on, you know, the dude going down and it was, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole process. So I don't ever remember not knowing. I was three and the neighbours... There's this little girl who lived next door and her dad looked over the fence and I was dry humping his two-year-old daughter on the grass in the backyard, right? And he looked over and was like, what are you doing? Like yelled and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, and, you know, so I think it's it's just something that would have happened in front of me and around me. It was just always there. And, you know, in India, as you got older, you became more aware and, you know, like... Obviously, there'd be someone who said, you know, I have a need or I need love or something or other, and someone would carry a mattress up onto the roof and, you know, to them and trundle off up there and off they go. It was everywhere. There was no, there wasn't anywhere that it wasn't. That was probably one of the most challenging things, isolating when you come back and you're an 11-year-old kid and, you know, not only you're surrounded by systemites that were all supposed to be trying to kill you eventually, then... You're in school and all the girls are giggling over a magazine, with, you know, with their favourite pop stars in it, and you're used to going all the way. It's like, what the fuck do you do with that? It's like, what, how do I relate to this person? What do I say first, second and third? They are so completely on a different level. There's just no similarities. None of them, you know, would have run a team of kids washing the dishes, and that's the nice side of things. You know, then you bring it to all the rest with the constant lack of safety and the beatings and the, you know, public shaming and being stripped naked and belted in front of everyone and, you know, the, just all the stuff that came with it. And there's, you know, the people talk about the physical, sexual and emotional abuse, but it seems to be kicking around a bit more now. But the fourth one of spiritual abuse, you know, where they actually really get into your head not so much just emotionally, but what you believe. They're trying to get at your moral centre. And I think that is another entirely new aspect or fraction of abuse that the cult and other organisations like it really bring about their own thing that's really, you know, different to everything else.
So, you know, landing there with, with these other kids and, you know, I knew I was different. I didn't know who Michael Jackson was, right? I could read and we went to music class and I pick up a guitar and I tune it and I belt out a song. And the teacher was like, you know, wow, you're, you know, you're full of surprises, Joey. Because <laughs> I have this mixed up accent that's, because you know, in India you're living with Americans and Germans and, you know, French people. He's in, in, you're obviously in India, so... And I had a strong Canadian accent when I was younger. So just this whole weird amalgamated accent, which is quite a common feature amongst us, but I've been here long enough now to have lost most of that, you know, and then trying to pick that up. And I really loved that first teacher. She was one of those beautiful, kind angels that I think came along at a time that I really needed her. We couldn't afford the school excursion. It was 30 bucks. And she was saying, oh, you know, has everyone handed in their money? And, you know, she's going around and I just held back and at the end. So you talk about things that are charged, right? I don't know if this is something that's charged or whether I was just so touched by this that it sticks with me, but it gets me every time. And, you know, I said, I said, we can't afford $30. And she goes, we'll soon see about that. <laughs> and that's all she said, this little stick of a woman. I reckon she paid for it herself. But I got to go on year six camp and... Again, there was just that room. I mean, getting changed and pulling my pants on, this girl that was keen on me came running into the room and I was just like, ah, what do I do? You know, she was probably just thought it was going to be funny. And to me, I just panicked, didn't know what to do. That's just part of the gig. <laughs> so, yeah, the rebuilding my moral virginity was something that was really, really important, you know, and I think... It's a really important thing for a lot of the guys, especially that came out or come out of the Children of God, is when there was no courting, right? It was just like, oh, I have a need and I'd like that need met with you, please. And, you know, there's this where the girls weren't allowed to say no, the guys weren't allowed to say no. You know, I was getting prepped towards the end and given the talk about you're 11 and a half now, Joey, and nearly 12. And I was getting bags by various women in the house and saying, oh, I want to be first. And I was like, you know, pretty intense. And then I wasn't allowed to say no to anyone, even if they, if I was attracted to them or not attracted to them or didn't matter how old they were or young they were. It was when you talk about grooming and that kind of thing, like that was a specific thing and it went for hours. It could go for like two hours at a time and it happened on a number of days. So I probably had... I don't know, 20 odd hours of this sort of talk and indoctrination because I was getting closer to being 12 and that was it. That was one of the catalysts of my parents leaving is one, we got a whole heap of diseases all in a row with, you know, malaria, typhoid and hepatitis A and stuff. And then next they knew I was going to be sent off to Japan or, you know, Thailand or whatever to one of those teen camps and they'd probably never see me again. So I think they just thought, well, I think it's time to get out. So thankfully they did. At least I got to go to high school, you know, and my parents did have, for all their failings, they did have enough wits about them to see that outcome and for it to be not acceptable to them. You know, the number of kids that were just sent off to random families, you know, hearing Serena's story about being raised by all these people and they're not her parents and she's just now living with someone else and, you know, that... It happened to thousands, thousands of them, <laughs> tens of thousands of kids just being displaced and, you know, raised by other people and not treated very well. And the repercussions of that will last for generations. I think it's 
unless, of course, there's that intentional effort put in to really put it in and say, well, that, that cycle stopped me, you know. And even though you never make all the right decisions and you never do it all perfectly, you can really demonstrate to your kids that you love them. And there are ways to break that cycle. The current piece I'm writing at the moment is about acting out. I think acting out is one of the most tragic side effects of child abuse because it basically puts you in a position where you feel like you're just as bad as the perpetrator. And so, again, those feelings of dirtiness and guilt and things because all the things you blame or that you would probably say to the person that abused you or to the people that abused you, then all of a sudden it's like that information is coming straight back kind of thing, you know. It's an intense situation to deal with. And even though you were just a kid when it happened, it's still very, very difficult to shake. And I think there's, you know, I've heard personally, we're talking probably a dozen situations where when people do come back into society and siblings you know, messing around with each other just as part of acting out and, you know, having their own romantic nights and things like that. Like it was just that's what you knew and everything else was odd and that was something that made you feel like it was normal. It's like, oh, you know, at least it can be normal. That's something I'm delving into at the moment is just the guilt around acting out and the side effects of those kinds of things. And, and more frequently it happens with violence. You know, where your dad flogs you and so you flog your kid or, you know, you dish the same discipline out that you got, you know. I'd be like, well, we were kids, we weren't allowed that. So you can't either, you know. That is obviously the most common form of reenactment or carrying the abuse on. But then when you get these really complex situations like the children of God, and I think you have to put real effort into closing up those gaps and healing those wounds and just, you know, pouring the love into them and spending extra time in those chambers, you know, to, to bring light to them. Did you start to bring back your moral virginity? Part of that was like with my fishing rod and pulling the issues up in my interpersonal relationships, which I value really highly, like they are extremely important to me. I guess I would observe my behaviour around say girls, because that's where I really needed to rebuild my moral virginity. After coming out of the Children of God, I gave Christianity a real good bash, right, because I started to not really like it. I didn't really want it. <laughs> Christianity. And not a lot of people saying their way is the only way. What do you know? Add them to the list. <laughs> but um, so I gave it a really good bash. I just thought, well, I'm not going to say that I don't believe in that if I haven't given it a really good go. What if... The only reason that it hasn't worked or that I don't like is because I haven't given it a good batch. So I did that. And I've done that with a lot of things. I, I did that with homosexuality as well. I asked myself, well, I'm not just going to someone say, oh, you know, are you gay? And I say, no, just straight off the bat. Well, have I thought about it? And so all I did, it didn't take long, that one, because I'm very heavily and strongly heterosexual. But I imagined a guy and sort of thought, well, what would it be like to kiss a guy? And it was just like, ah, oh, no. Nah. I knew, but if I didn't go through that and give myself the space to maybe say yes, well, how can I answer that question properly? I guess it was just one of those things where I looked at how I reacted and how I treated women, and I just made sure that the end result or how I was behaving was something that I could be satisfied with. 
it all came back to not being what I thought was right or wrong, but is it something that I am satisfied with? And if you tick that box, you fucking beauty. <laughs> we'll, we'll stick with that. You know, that was a really, really important step. Would you say that you were hypersexual after you left the family? Yeah. Yeah. How did that affect your life? It was very distracting. And it was just, so, you know, you'd go to your friend's house and you'd be aware of your friend's mum's shape or you might even be attracted to them. It's just that, you know, that repeat. People will play out the abuse almost as a fantasy kind of thing um, until it's put to bed. So there was, you know, where I'd find my friend's mum's hot sort of thing. But it always came with a lot of shame because, of course, being thrust into Christianity because the next thing you know, you go from the children of God where you can do every, anything and you're not allowed to say no. And then you go to church and you're not allowed to hold hands or you're not supposed to kiss because you're saving as much as you possibly can for your one. And it's just this contrast. But that's also part of, you know, me saying as a 14, 15-year-old boy, what things would I be confused about anyway? So trying to always, I suppose, questioning how much I would have already had to have dealt with because let's face it, 14, 15-year-old boys, randy little fuckers, was those types of situations where I'd, I'd say, well, what, what do I think is a healthy approach to this and what do I think is a wholesome approach to it and does it make me feel good and does it make the other person feel good? That's always been a an indicator as well. It's not so much all about how it makes me feel or does it make me feel all right, but certainly with a massive dose of empathy to guideline to whether something is right or not is the whole idea of consent, where if something I'm doing might be right in this one situation and then really, really not right in the next. What they've been through or how they're taking you know, your behaviour, that's another indicator of right and wrong. It's just sensitivity. You're just trying to float through the world and, you know, leave places in a better way than when you found them. I would love to have the opportunity eventually to go to, you know, Australia, maybe do a journey with you to extract your full story because it's just absolutely fascinating. I would love to maybe leave you with something that'll just leave you with some resolve. And I know Christina earlier had asked if being able to let go of some of those emotions would be useful to you. What exactly were you going to lead into with that? Because there's so many, you know, different modalities. Would it be interesting to do perceptual positioning here? Um, well, what I was thinking is that, so through his languaging, he wants time to process you got that? Yes, you need to I was pretty firm about that one, so I uh, pretty much didn't leave any questions out there. <laughs> very, very interesting process. So I was asking because if we wanted to do maybe another episode, we could maybe let go of an emotion. Or if you wanted to do that privately, then I would negative emotions, remove negative emotions of, of uh, anger. So yeah, part of the work that we do is timeline therapy. So we, you know, once again, we have this six-month program that involves a journey where we go into your life and we go over all these major events, you know, that have sort of shaped the characters and all, all that stuff so we can make connections. And then mm. the rest is integration. So timeline therapy involves, you know, you going back and just getting rid of all of the big emotions that are still charged in your life, like anger, fear, guilt, shame, sadness, uh, hurt. Sadness, hurt. 
And that doesn't mean that you're not going to feel them in the future, but it's just letting go of the ones that are still attached to the past and still making you feel very much like it's a part of your present. And, you know, it takes each one could take like five minutes. It could take 10, 20 minutes, but being able to let go of that stuff, it's so empowering because then it enables you to really actually take full responsibility of your life, to live in cause, to understand that everything is happening for you, not to you, and that you are the creator of it. So it's almost like pain, right? It's a signal that something is wrong. And just like anxiety, anxiety is a warning sign that you're focusing on what you don't want. Red alert, red alert, red alert. And when these things happen, you know, like these suddenly unexpected things like your wife leaving you, cheating on you, abandoning you, getting fired, all of these things are like, if you don't take care of this issue, it's going to get worse. It could go, if it goes any longer, something else is going to happen and it's going to be more chaotic and more detrimental. And what most Mm -hmm. people like to do is pop the zannies and pop the hydros and, you know, all this stuff to mask the pain. But what's doing it, it, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to get fester and get worse and worse and worse and worse. So getting to a point where you can be grateful and look back and be like, you know, thank God this happened when it did, you know, and hindsight is 2020 and getting to a place where we don't judge the moment as good or bad, I think is key, right? Because we have no idea what the future holds, but if we can look at these situations and adversities and travesties and trials and tribulations as just a little indicator of where we're veering off of our path, you know, where we're getting out of alignment, then we can start to see things objectively and get resolve and, you know, solution. That's certainly, uh, that's part of a, a process that isn't always linear either, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, using those emotions, as you say, as indicators, but also not being afraid of them. So anger, it seems this it's got a bad rap but it's it's important sometimes and even fear fear is important i usually say that they are the engine but they're not the steering wheel right so those things you can use them they're there for a very good reason you need them but they don't steer you you kind of you steer them or you use them as indicators anyway that whole idea of anger and you know it's good Sometimes you need it, and it's that idea of it's a survival response as well, back from you know that fight or flight. And the caveman quite frequently take things back to caveman because I think it was a far simpler life. But you know, caveman thing, and there's something coming, and you either got to stand there and fight like all blazes to to beat it, or you need to run as fast as you possibly can to get away from it. There are your two options most of the time. I have a question: Would you say that your primary response is it to is it Fight, flight, or freeze. I'm a fauna from way back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, but I, I recognize that a lot in myself where something will come up and I'll go into a room and almost pick out, I wouldn't call them the most dangerous, but the free radicals and kind of head straight for them and befriend them first and kind of make the room safe by going to the you know, most catastrophic people in the room. I was like, okay, well, I'll go and befriend him. That makes the room a bit safer. And you're completely unaware that I was doing that, but making a very conscious decision to that going into a place and going, right, you know, they're the rowdy ones. I'll go, I'll go and 
talk to them first. And so there was definitely that. But do you that think the world needs people like that? The world needs all the archetypes. The world needs all the different people in their different stages, right? Because it helps us to understand. It helps us to also work as a society. We only have a little bit less than 10 minutes. I would like to end with your poem. Your beautiful poem. But I also <laughs> want to maybe pose, if you're interested, maybe some things that you could do to maybe get you a little further on that path to being able to let go of these emotions is when you feel the triggers, right? When you start to feel these charged emotions, if anger starts to show up, because once you start shaking up these memories and you start going back and you can notice that the parts start showing up because they're like, oh, he's giving me a platform to speak now. So I'm going to come roaring out. It's a good thing. You know, it can feel a little bit chaotic, but it's a good thing, you know, because that's when, when we can recognize them, when we can name them, then we can integrate them. So what would you suggest like when he has these triggers coming up, maybe like noting, taking note of? Uh, so what I always tell my clients is that become aware of what is coming up. And then also, what are you seeing, hearing, and feeling when the anger comes up? And then what do you want instead? What do I want instead of this? What is this showing me about myself? Because a lot of times when we have anger or something like trigger come up, it's not about what happened then. It's about you're just triggering something from our past. So when was the first time I felt this way? And then getting kind of uh, curious about where it came from, its root, and then basically saying, what do I want instead? How do I want to feel instead of this? And then refocusing the energy towards what you want. Because our whatever we focus on creates our behavior and then gets our results. And you do really well with getting results in your business and stuff like that. So your positive mindset and what you focus on has actually been really helpful for you in getting, you know, in growing this beautiful business that you have. But you can use it also in personal endeavors and things like that, too, especially when it comes to resentment, anger, fear, sadness, and all of those things, too. Yeah. So I would encourage you, you know, when these things come up, sadness, guilt, shame, anything like that, to... Pay attention to what you're hearing, seeing, feeling at the time. And just being curious with yourself, you know, having compassion, no judgment, just curiosity. Hmm, I wonder why this is coming up right now because that's how you start healing, right? That's how we can start making the connection. Write them down. And if you're interested in sharing with us, you know, we would love to help you continue along this path to recovery and healing, which I mean, you're doing such a phenomenal job. And I just think that there's so many people who are going to get massive value from just listening to this and listening to your story of perseverance and resilience, which is absolutely breathtaking to hear and to witness. Thank you very much. I hope someone gets something from it. <laughs> the openness is the thing that I'm really proud of that. And it's taken a bit to sort of say the things that I'm proud of when it comes to myself. But the feedback that I get from the openness and say the releasing of the story and all that is is just that, you know, again, creating this sense and feeling of belonging, not really on purpose, but just by saying, this is how I'm feeling, actually. And then someone going, oh, you too. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that too. And it just... It makes it okay and it kills the stigma straight away. You don't have to be, you know, it's not like you need to come to a conclusion. You don't have to be all the way through it. It doesn't have to be completely healed. It's just a thing of like, this is me today. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to try again tomorrow.
can only do in one day what you can do in a day and everything else gets forgiven and then you have another crack the next day. He just wrote a poem right before we had this conversation, which if you hear it, it's, it's a little hard to believe. <laughs> but I would love for you to share that with us and our audience, please, if you would. I do love sharing through poetry. It's, it takes like normal words, right, and it just spectacularizes them. <laughs> you know, it's just so fun. I, I do love it. Okay. I want to meet you on the floor of the ocean, not up with the sun, the moon and the stars. That's where it's easy. Easy to meet, easy to love, easy to be, easy to lose, easy to fall, easy to fail, easy to leave and easy to forget. Meet me where the light refuses to shine. Meet me in the mire, in the smell of swine. Meet me where the darkness chooses the tunes and we dance in the halls, walls etched with runes, where the failures meet and the heartbroken cry, where all the outcasts hang out drinking dry. There we will find souls like ours, souls that matter, souls of substance, resilience that stands the test of time, where ordinary words come to life and rhyme. If my eyes don't weep, there's not enough feeling. And if your eyes are dry, you aren't for me. No interest if your skin doesn't taste like the sea. If the glow in your eyes tells me life being too easy. Or your countenance calls a distinct lack of empathy. I need to know you've crawled to be where you are with fingernail marks on those dark crooked paths. For the sweetest of songs sung with parched lips and wet eyes with bloody hearts on dirty sleeves. If you have not passed through fire, your gold is corrupted. With weakened resolve, chakras interrupted. Your tails ring hollow and you don't scratch the itch, all needle and thread, with no garment stitched. Please meet me down on the floor of the ocean, where failure and success mould into one where our bodies you can't see, so our minds can run free, down where the most wonderful of humans are forged. Wow. The second time seemed to hit harder. Oh, it's so beautiful. Thank you for meeting us at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> well, it came to me, but as I was sort of contemplating talking to you guys and when I talk about the openness, it's what you're offering. And it's, you know, it's removing stigma from some crazy, you know, difficult situations and, you know, stuff that people don't talk about. And instead, there's the two of you sitting there, you know, on a podcast and scratching that shit all over the internet. This is us, this is me, and you know, how you talk about your sexuality and your desires and your struggles and all the things, it's just so refreshing. It's just so, so nice. And so I feel already like we've met down at the bottom of the sea before we even, you know, press the, uh, the Zoom button. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's for you guys. You uh, are making it feel really good to be able to share my story because I'll be doing that in the new year and I haven't fully... I, I mean, I've told 
family, friends, and like people that I know kind of like the little snippets of it, but I'm actually going to put it out there and hearing yours and how open and honest and raw you were has very much inspired me. So thank you for that. I'm, I'm excited for you. I really am. There is excited for y'all <laughs> to hear it too. Jesus. Oh, it's just such a beautiful experience, you know, like released each part of those 14 parts that I wrote and after hitting the send button, I'd jump around the kitchen pumping the air. It was just like, oh, yeah, it's me and I'm not going to hide anymore. It was just, it was such a liberating feeling. I'm really excited for you. If you guys feel like I do, like you barely just scratched the surface of my curiosity. Now I wish we had all creepy day to talk because like I just wanted to ask you so many questions but where can yeah. people find you where can you find the work that you publish um if they want more details where should we send them well I've got a, a medium.com profile joe daggerford at medium.com and that's where I put pieces of writing on gratitude the benefits of adversity you know it's where I post my construction leadership just those kinds of things, as well as the life story in 14 parts, which I called The Long Road, which is a pretty dumbed-down version, right? It's kind of like I didn't want it to read like a, you know, dirty story for a pedophile, so I, I kept it pretty clean. But I just, at the same time, sort of delved in to make sure that the feelings were all there. Then I write my poetry on an Instagram page I called The Serenade Co. I've written poems for people whose children have died or partners have died and things and I, so I like gifting poetry like sitting in someone's feelings and actually letting them you know putting myself in them and then talking through that they're the two sort of or two of the public things there's there's all sorts of them. I mean everything right so I've got LinkedIn and <laughs> so whatever's there and we'll be posting all of that information in the show notes where you can follow him and read his stuff and hopefully we'll have him back on the podcast we'll see I would love to have you back on. It was such a pleasure, Joe. And hopefully we can meet you in real life. That would be amazing. Yay. Awesome. Once again, you can find us at theactivationproject.com. I'm Olivia Eden, O underscore EM88 on Instagram. And she is Christina1111. If you are interested in working with us, email us at become.activated at gmail.com. We are also accepting donations. Our goal is to raise half a million dollars in our first year so that we can take 250 people through our program. There's a lot of people out there who need help. And if you're interested in blessing your own life by sponsoring them, please reach out to us. All right, Joe, thank you so much. It was an honor, an absolute honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.